This morning we are going to begin a series on the fruit of the Spirit, uh, building off of the series that we just concluded at Easter, uh, Living With. Uh, we've talked about uh, living with uh, several aspects of uh, uh, sort of Christian virtues, and uh, that led me to thinking about the fruit of the Spirit as uh, another reality that we're invited to live with in our lives. Uh, and uh, so I want to turn to the text in Galatians chapter 5, where we read about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, beginning at verse uh, 19. But when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, uh, some translations call that the flesh. Uh, any, any, uh, in any case, sinful nature or flesh really is uh, that part of me that is uh, self uh, governed, uh, uh, turned away from God in opposition to God. Uh, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, your lives will produce these evil results, sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your own little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sin. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here, there is no conflict with the law. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. As we uh, begin to think about the fruit of the Spirit in this series, I want to uh, begin by saying just a couple of things in preparation. The first one is this. Uh, you are designed to do hard things. Uh, in fact, not only are you designed to do hard things, but you're designed to flourish doing hard things. You're designed to flourish, to thrive in difficult seasons. The fruit of God's Spirit grows precisely during times of scarcity and war, pandemic and persecution and displacement. Just stop and think for a few minutes about all of the times and all of the places that God's people have sat down with the words of Galatians chapter 5 and read about this fruit of the Holy Spirit that is available to you. All kinds of difficult and challenging circumstances. And it comes to us, even us today, as the promise of something that is available for us in this situation as well. Because any time people are paying attention to the presence of God, any time we are attending to God, uh, as Jesus says in John, uh, any time we're abiding in the presence of Jesus, we're in a position to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. Some people think that getting into the presence of God or abiding in the presence of God is really hard work. Uh, I came across this past week the story of a missionary, E. Stanley Jones. And E. Stanley Jones was a missionary to India, and he was friends with Gandhi. And Jones was at a retreat that Gandhi was hosting, and Jones struck up a conversation with one of Gandhi's disciples, one of his followers. And, and he said, he asked him this question. He said, how is it that you find God? How do you find God? And 
Gandhi's disciples said, well, I suppose if you were to go down to the ocean and take a straw and, uh, and dip the end of the straw into the ocean and sip by sip, draw all of the water out of the ocean, there at the bottom, you might find God. In other words, he was pointing to the idea that it's very difficult, it's very, very hard, it's taxing, it's challenging. It's maybe impossible to find the presence of God. But then this disciple of Gandhi turned it around and asked E. Stanley Jones, and how do you find God? And Jones paused for just a moment, and then he said, you know, I haven't found God. Instead, God has found me. I simply turned around and there I was, already embraced by the presence of my God. It isn't difficult to find the presence of God. The second thing that I want to say about the fruit of the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is not the same thing as the gift of the Spirit. Uh, it's not like a, a spiritual gift where somebody might say, well, I think I might have the gift of teaching, but not the gift of prophecy. Or I have the gift of administration, but not the gift of help. I have some gifts or that gift, but not those gifts or not this gift. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit isn't like that. It's not like we get to pick and choose which one of the gifts uh, we want to have. Uh, it's not like I say, oh, I have the gift of or the, the, the fruit of love in my life, but I don't have uh, the fruit of patience. One text puts it this way. The fruit of the Spirit is the external, visible expression of power that is working inwardly and invisibly. And so the nature of the fruit that one sees in my life really is a demonstration of the nature of the power that's producing it. Uh, Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 7. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, uh, you will see their true nature. You'll see their true character by the fruit that they demonstrate. The external, visible manifestation of that inward reality. And so in this case, in Galatians, Paul does that same contrast. He said, some people who are following the flesh, sort of the, the, the nature and the power and the character of a life that is, that is oriented away from God, uh, some people follow that power and the fruit, the character, the nature of their life uh, is, is really broken and, and destructive and poisonous. And he said, on the other hand, uh, when the invisible person of the Holy Spirit lives within you and brings you into a living union with Jesus, there will be a certain kind of fruit in your life that is produced. And notice that he says fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a singular word in our English language and in the Greek language. And the idea there is that, that there's a unity in the character that, that the Spirit is producing in you. In other words, all of the words in Galatians 5 describe various visible, external, expressed, lived out aspects of the singular presence of God's Spirit in your life. There's one fruit. And so uh, it is, it's a little bit artificial to pull all of these aspects apart, but we'll do that for the purpose of clarity and study. Uh, but we do so remembering that we're not coming to a buffet line where we get to pick and choose which ones of the fruit uh, look tasty to us today. We're invited uh, to cultivate and to welcome 
all of these characteristics into our life. And so today we want to begin with the characteristic of joy. Uh, I was thinking about the characteristic of joy as I was reading First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 this past week. In uh, Thessalonians, Paul describes the fact that he's separated from his congregation in Thessalonica. And, uh, and I was thinking about how often it is that Paul the Apostle writes a letter to a congregation that is remote and removed from him, uh, maybe a, even a congregation he's never been with. And he says to them, I long to be with you. I long to see you. I want to be reunited with you. I want to be with you face to face. And, and perhaps in our uh, context today, we can uh, uh, resonate a little bit more clearly with the heart of Paul who wants to be together with his people. Uh, but then in 1 Thessalonians, he goes on, he says, even though I long to be together, even though I want to see you face to face and not just on a Zoom call, even though I, I, I want to, to be with you and I feel the distress of being separated from you, even so, there is so much joy that you bring me. And, and isn't that great that Paul says even um, that joy is present even though we're absent from each other. So as we begin this uh, conversation about joy today, I want to be really clear that this is not a, a sermon uh, about um, don't worry, be happy. Uh, this isn't a, a sermon telling people how they should feel or ought to feel. It's not about guilting somebody or getting down on somebody for not being joyful enough. Um, rather, uh, the New World Bible Dictionary defines joy this way, and this is the way that I'll be thinking about it. Joy is consistently the mark, both individually and corporately of the church, both individually as of the believer and corporately of the whole church. Joy is the mark. It is a quality and not simply an emotion grounded upon God himself and indeed derived from him. Hear that really clearly. It's, 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 it's grounded in God and derived from the presence of God. Uh, Douglas Abrams is the author of a book called uh, The Book of Joy. And in that uh, uh, book, uh, he says that in an age of despair, choosing joy is a revolutionary act. And I agree with him. Joy is revolutionary. Uh, but it isn't, first of all, an, uh, an act. It isn't an action. Uh, it's, first of all, a gift. And it's, 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 a, it's not, first of all, a choice but rather it's um, from being chosen. And so you receive joy. Joy grows in you. Joy becomes the natural part of the expression of your life. So joy isn't a job that you have to go out and accomplish. It's not something that you have to work hard at. Uh, it's not like you have to take a straw and try to drink the ocean dry and pretend that everything is okay. Joy is a gift that you can receive. And my prayer today is that you can taste some of the fruit of joy today. Stop for just a moment and um, consider your life. Think about a moment of joy in your life. Uh, perhaps a moment of wonder or awe or excitement or exhilaration. When was it? How did you express it? Maybe it was something very simple. As I was spending some time today reading, I got a surprise phone call from my daughter, Hannah. And she called from up north and uh, called just to say hi and to check in and tell me what she was up to and to ask what I was up to and to say I love you. 
And that brought uh, such a great amount of joy to my heart, that stirred joy in me. What are the things that regularly make you happy or, or cause you or allow you to experience joy? Think about those little moments of exhilaration and joy in your life. Now, based on that, philosopher uh, Dallas Willard writes this. He says, God is the most joyous being in the universe. God is the most joyous being in the universe. And then he tells a story. He says, <clears throat> while I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. And I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought. But when I came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence, then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. And then he says this, he says, listen, then I realize that God sees this all of the time. He sees it and he experiences it. He knows it from every possible point of view. Uh, this and billions of other scenes like and unlike it, in this and billions of other words, great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. We pay a lot of money uh, to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and never tire of looking at their beauty and marvelous forms and movement. But God has seas full of them, which he constantly enjoys. Uh, we're enraptured by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars of an opera or lines of a poem. We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime, and we may have very few of them. But he is simply one great, inexhaustible, and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. And then Willard concludes this way. He says, all of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all of their breadth and depth and richness. God is the most joyous being in the universe. Now let me ask you this question. What happens when you are around somebody who is profoundly joyful? Uh, not somebody who is uh, obnoxiously happy or trite and trivial, but somebody who is profoundly and deeply joyful. What happens when you're around them is that their joy becomes contagious. And so it's no wonder that the Bible tells story after story uh, about the fact that there is joy that is found in the presence of God. Second Samuel uh, 6 tells one of those uh, wonderful stories. Let me just read a little bit of that and, uh, and look at that story uh, with you. This is the story of David bringing the ark uh, back to Jerusalem. Uh, David has just become king, and one of the very first things that he wants to do as king is to bring the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. So Second uh, uh, Samuel 6, then David mobilized 30,000 special troops. He led them to Bela of Judah to bring home the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Uh, they placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the hillside home of Abinadab, Yuza in Ohio, Abinadab's sons were guiding the cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio walked in front. David and all of the people of Israel, and then listen to this, were celebrating before the Lord with all of their might, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. 
Uh, the very first thing that, that, that David wants to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant, this, this, this wooden box that is laid over in gold and, and covered with these two angelic beings with their wingtips stretched across the, the, the length of the Ark and, and, and stretching out towards one another. And he, he, he brings this Ark with the, with the cherubim on it into Jerusalem because there where the wingtips of the cherubim are just about to touch, there in that holy space, God himself dwells. The presence of God is so closely associated with the Ark of the Covenant that it's as though the presence of God uh, is there in the midst of the people, enthroned above the cherubim, says the text. And so in the presence of God, restoring the presence of God to Jerusalem, David, uh, uh, the text says, sings and dances with exuberance and uses the term with all of his might. He's expressing his joy. The story goes on. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah put out his hand to study the ark of God. The, the Lord's anger blazed out against Uzzah for doing this, and God struck him dead beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had blazed out against Uzzah. Uh, he named the place Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. And it's still called that today. David was now afraid of the Lord and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? And so David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. He took it in, instead to the home of Obed-Edom of Gath. And the ark of the Lord remained there with the family of Obed-Edom for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom's home and everything that he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark to the city of David with great celebration. There it is again, back in the presence of God, more celebrated. And after the men who were carrying it had gone six steps, they stopped and waited so David could sacrifice an ox and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, wearing a priestly tunic. So David and all of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with much shouting and blowing of trumpets. It just describes such a, a visceral and, and physical expression of joy. And part of that joy comes from the fact that in this story, David learns two things about God. First of all, he learns that God is more holy than he ever would have imagined. God is more holy than he ever would have imagined. And secondly, that God is more gracious than he ever could have thought. So in, in Uzzah's case, they discover the holiness of God. God's holiness uh, can't, be, uh, uh, can't be infringed upon. The holy presence of God is pure and will always be preserved. But then Obed-Edom uh, experiences the presence of God in a way that goodness and blessing and graciousness flow into his life. So both of these stories live sort of in this, in this uncomfortable space next to each other. The, the, the terrifying, uh, 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 deadly holiness of God and the gracious blessings of God that pour out into Obed-Edom. Whenever I think about those two stories next to each other, I always think about the way that C.S. Lewis described, uh, describes Aslan. He's uh, not safe, but he's good. God is not safe, but God is so good. And when, when David sees both of those realities, the, the, the awesome, uh, ferocious, pure, blazing holiness of God, 
and, and, the, and the goodness and the blessing that flows out of God. Both of those things happen together. That encounter with that God changes David. And it changes him so much that he's willing to express, he's willing to express this joy in, in public. And that wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, in fact, as you know, the story continues, and Saul's daughter, Michael, sees David dancing and celebrating and expressing this joy. And she becomes sort of like a foil in the story. And uh, she says what everyone at her level of government would have seen and would have said, kings don't act like this. Kings don't dance and carry on. Uh, Tim, uh, Tim Keller reminds us that in shame and honor cultures, kings had to be remote and intimidating. Uh, kings had to carry on with their dignity. And if anybody ever showed disrespect for the king, uh, they would just be killed. It wouldn't be tolerated. The king has to hold himself back and be aloof and be a little bit remote and frightening and intimidating. But David does the opposite of all this. It seems wrong. It seems dangerous. It seems embarrassing. When Michael confronts him about it and says, you shouldn't be doing this. You're disgracing yourself. David looks at her and says, ah, but there's something even more real. There's something more important. There's something greater at play here than that, uh, than, than keeping up those appearances. And David looks at her and says, listen, it was before the Lord who chose me. The Lord chose me who embraced me, who came near to me, rather than your father or anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. Listen, when he says that, it's not a proud statement. He's not tooting his own horn. He's saying, I was chosen by grace. And he's absolutely undone by that. And in the story of the ark, he was reminded of the nature of the God who chose him by grace. Let that story sink in for just a moment because it's also your story. You are chosen by grace. You have been embraced and welcomed into the presence of God who is both utterly holy, pure, dazzling, without any flaw, wholly other, and mind-blowingly good and generous and gracious. Not safe, but good and you have been welcomed into the presence of that living God. Let the joy of that encounter reverberate through your soul as the ultimate reality and source of your joy today. Amen.